Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, 2 Kings chapter 20. Well, be aware that uh, we're going to take a couple of detours today in order to give you some information that ought to be helpful for your general understanding of the Bible. Now, for several weeks, we've been following the seesaw progress of Judah, the southern kingdom, which is generally all that remains of God's chosen people still living in the promised land, although no doubt a few members of the ten northern tribes were also still hanging around. Somehow, they avoided deportation to Assyria. And the latest king of Judah is Hezekiah, who was pretty close to being on par with King David when it comes to wholeheartedness towards God. Now his father, Ahaz, however, was this this worst sort of tyrant who had led Judah into the most degrading sorts of abominations, including accepting a vassal relationship with Assyria in return for allowing him to hang on to uh, to his throne and his crown. But what we learned of Ahaz was that he didn't just submit meekly to Assyria. He also eagerly accepted their ways and their gods. He did everything in his power to become just like them. He admired them. He decided that the Israelites ought not be exceptional in the world's eyes. Better to be like everybody else. King Ahaz didn't want Judah to be a chosen people of God. He wanted Judah to blend in with the new world order as envisioned by the Assyrian Empire. It's ironic that 2700 years later we see the modern day nation of the Israelites essentially seeking after the same thing. Their attitude is probably best characterized by the brief prayer offered up to God by Tevya, that Jewish milkman and father of only daughters in the Hollywood film Fiddler on the Roof, who looks up skyward and he says, I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while can't you choose someone else? (laughs) King Ahaz didn't want to stop being Hebrew necessarily. He only wanted to be like the Gentile world. He wanted to take advantage of all those benefits that he perceived would come his way. He wanted to remain identifiable as a racial Hebrew, but he also wanted to be as indistinguishable as he could be as a citizen of the world. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Jews the world over have sought only to be accepted by by the Gentile nations. And Israel today seeks the same. Unfortunately, this is not the destiny for anyone who is set apart for God. And Christians and Messianics, God's Ecclesia, This is something that's been lost on most of us for a very long time. 
apparently without realizing it, we seek to be as a chaz. We seek to be identified as Christians and Jews on the one hand, and yet indistinguishable from the world by all outward appearances otherwise. We want to have it both ways. We want all the spiritual benefits of salvation in Christ and also all the economic and social advantages of the unsaved world. It didn't work out too well for King Ahaz. It's not working out too well for the church or for Judaism even though we often delude ourselves into believing that it is. Here's what Christ had to say about it. Revelation 3.1 To the angel of the messianic community in Sardis write, Here is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know what you're doing. You have a reputation for being alive, but in fact you're dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains before it dies too, for I have found what you are doing incomplete in the sight of my God. So remember what you received and heard and obey it. Turn from your sin, for if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. You don't know at what moment I'll come upon you. Nevertheless, you do have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes and they will walk with me clothed in white because they are worthy. He who wins the victory will, like them, be dressed in white clothing. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. In fact, I'll acknowledge him individually before my father and before his angels. Therefore, those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to his messianic communities. King Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, meant to change all that his wicked father had done and to return Judah to the ways of the Lord. But because his father had many years earlier turned his people over to idolatry and to a foreign master, much had changed about the Israeli people and Israeli society. Irreparable damage had been done. Like a car that's been in a flood and then outwardly repaired to where on the surface it seems bright and shiny and lovely. Underneath that carpet... Inside the crevices of that car's steel structure is in unseen places. That car is rapidly rusting away. So as we're soon going to see, while Hezekiah fought to his dying day to bring about much needed religious and civil reform to Judah, and there were surface changes that indeed occurred, when he finally died, the country immediately returned to its old ways. Let's read 2 Kings chapter 20 together. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 427. <clears throat> Around this time, Hezekiah, 
became ill to the point of death. Yeshiao, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amotz, came to him and said, Here's what Adonai says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not live. Hezekiah turned his face towards the wall and he prayed to Adonai, I plead with you, Adonai, remember now how I have lived before you truly and wholeheartedly, how I've done what you see is good. And he cried bitter tears. And before Isaiah had left the city's middle courtyard, the word of Adonai came to him, Go back! Tell Hezekiah, the prince of my people, that this is what Adonai, the God of David, your ancestor, says, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will heal you. And on the third day you are to go up to the house of Adonai, and I will add 15 years to your life. Also I will rescue you in this city from the power of the king of Asher. I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then Isaiah said, Prepare a fig plaster. They brought it and laid it on the inflammation so that he would recover. Hezekiah said to Yeshiel, what sign will there be that Adonai will heal me and that I'll be able to go up to the house of Adonai on the third day? And Isaiah said, Here is the sign for you from Adonai that Adonai will do what he said. Do you want the shadow of the sundial to go forward ten intervals or backward ten intervals? And Hezekiah answered, It's easy for the shadow to go down ten intervals. Let, no, let the shadow return backward ten intervals. Isaiah called out to Adonai, and he brought the shadow of the sundial of Ahaz ten intervals backward after it had gone down that far. Brodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babel, heard that Hezekiah had been ill. So he sent a letter and a gift to him, and Hezekiah listened to the messengers and showed them the building where he kept his treasure, treasures, including the silver and gold and spices and precious oil, also the building where he kept his armor, everything in his treasury. There was nothing in his palace or in his entire domain that Hezekiah didn't show them. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and asked him, What did these men say? Where did they come from? And Hezekiah answered, They came from a distant country, Babel. And Isaiah asked, What have they seen in your palace? They've seen everything in my palace, said Hezekiah. There isn't a thing among my treasures that I haven't shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Here's what Adonai says. The day will come when everything in your palace, along with everything your ancestors stored up until today, will be carried off to Babel. Nothing will be left, said Adonai. They'll carry off some of your descendants, your own offspring. They'll be made eunuchs, serving in the palace of the king of Babel. And Hiskiah said to Yeshiah, The word of Adonai, which you have just told me, is good. He thought, Isn't it, though, if peace and truth continue at least through my lifetime? Other activities of Hiskiah, his power, and how he built the pool and aqueduct to bring water into the city are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Then Hezekiah slept with his ancestors, and Manasseh, his son, took his place as king. We've discussed in earlier lessons that the book of Kings works in concert with the book of Isaiah, and with parts of Second Chronicles. So let's read small portions of these other books so we can get as much information as we can 
to best render the meaning and the context of what 2 Kings chapter 20 is telling us. So, pick your Bibles back up and go to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. We're just going to read a few verses. 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Um, we're going to start at verse 24, so if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1217. 2 Chronicles chapter 32 we're going to read, uh, start reading at verse 24. Around this time, Hezekiah became ill to the point of death, but he prayed to Adonai who answered him, even giving him a sign. However, Hezekiah did not respond commensurately with the benefit that was done for him, because he had grown proud. Thus he brought anger on himself and on Judah and on Jerusalem as well. But Hezekiah then humbled himself for his pride, both he and the people living in Jerusalem, so that um, Adonai's anger did not strike them during Hezekiah's lifetime. Hiskiel had vast riches, great honor. He provided himself with storage places for silver and gold and precious stones, spices, shields, all kinds of valuable articles. Also storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine and olive oil, stalls for all kinds of livestock, pens for the flocks. He provided cities for himself. He purchased flocks and herds in abundance, for God had made him extremely wealthy. Later we're going to read extensively from Isaiah. King Hezekiah became ill. And it seemed that he wouldn't survive it. But as we read, he did not die. In a strange set of circumstances, it seems that the news of his miraculous recovery from his illness had something to do with a group of delegates from Babylon, which included the king of Babylon himself, coming to Jerusalem to visit Hezekiah. Now the first thing we need to understand is that chapter 20 is not in chronological order with chapters 19 or even 18. Okay. Rather, scholars rightly refer to chapter 20 as to kind of an appendix. Now we've seen this literary style before in the book of 1 Samuel. This appendix is added information that apparently the first writing of the handed down tradition about King Hezekiah didn't include. Information from some other source that was considered reliable enough, pertinent enough to add it. So when did Hezekiah fall ill? Shortly before King Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. Thus, if 2 Kings 18.13 is accurate, then it was probably late in the 13th year or early in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign that he was struck ill, since we're told that it was in the 14th year of his reign that Sennacherib of Assyria attacked Judah. Now, chapter 20, verse 1 states that Isaiah was summoned when Hezekiah suspected he had a serious illness and Isaiah offered him no comfort. The great prophet said that indeed the king needed to get his affairs in order, mostly meaning to name a successor because he was definitely going to die. In fact, 
This was not Isaiah's supposition. But we're told that Yehovah informed Isaiah that this would be the case. Now naturally, this news sent the king into a state of despair. So he rolled over in his bed, he faced the wall, and he tearfully prayed, asking Yehovah to heal him. Actually, that's not what he did. He didn't ask for healing. Interestingly, he just expressed his great distress. He expressed that he had walked wholeheartedly before God all of his days. And in fact, the feedback that he had been receiving concerning his reign, no doubt through Isaiah, was that he had done good deeds. He had been a righteous king. He was generally obedient to the Father. So what we have here is that King Hezekiah is perplexed as to why he's being struck down before he's even reached his 40th birthday. In ancient times, dying young was seen as a punishment. It was a curse from the gods. Even the Hebrews felt that the only real and tangible reward for faithfulness to God was a full lifespan. So to die earlier than that was an indication of a problem between that person and God. Hezekiah was crushed. All along he thought he had put himself on the line to do God's will. And often it pitted him against his advisors, his priests, his citizens. Now it seems as though it was all a mirage. He had been fooling himself even though he had no idea what he'd done wrong. As Yeshayahu, Isaiah was leaving the king and walking through the middle part of the city of Jerusalem, God's word came to him to return to the king with a new message. It was a much better message than the earlier one because the Lord has decided that Hezekiah will not die, but he shall recover. And according to the text, get an additional 15 years of life. In fact, the healing is going to occur so rapidly that within three days he will be out of his deathbed and instead be at the temple praising God and no doubt sacrificing in thanksgiving. This begs an obvious question. Did God change his mind? Do we have a situation whereby God sent a prophet with an oracle that the king is going to die only to hours later reverse his verdict? I think not. What we have is a contrast between the natural and the supernatural. And we will see this same dynamic played out in a number of ways in this story of Hezekiah's mysterious illness and miraculous recovery. Whatever Hezekiah's illness might have been, it was indeed a potentially fatal one. It was an illness that any and all humans are subject to simply because we're all part of the community of humanity and we are riddled with our frailties. It was not illness caused by God as a punishment or as a curse. But still, by all that's natural, 
It was the sort of medical condition that causes death. Yet, when he received the bad news from Isaiah, Hezekiah responded appropriately. He sought God's help. So God supernaturally intervened. He healed an otherwise fatal disease. And Hezekiah lived. And I think it is perfectly reasonable for us to assume that the Lord's, uh, rather the king's long record of righteousness and of faithfulness had everything to do with the Lord saving his life. In fact, I think that's one of the chief lessons of this story. But there's yet another unspoken circumstance going on. Hezekiah had no sons at this time. There is no record of his being married just yet, so no record of any children. In fact, the rabbis go so far as to say that it just might be that God was indeed punishing Hezekiah with a fatal illness for the crime of intentionally ignoring his duty to produce an heir. And while the duty of producing children, especially sons, was incumbent upon all Hebrews as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to be fruitful and to multiply, it was far more so for a royal descendant of King David to have sons so that David's dynasty would continue and eventually produce the Messiah. Now, while I don't agree with these rabbis' assessment, that the illness was a divine retribution, it does add another bit of information to help us understand just how devastated Hezekiah was. He got it. He got it. To this point, he hadn't married. He hadn't produced any sons to follow him. And as he lay on his deathbed, the consequences of that unwise decision were becoming all too apparent. Not only would the lack of a male heir end his royal line, it meant that Hezekiah would have no son to carry on his life essence after his death. We've discussed this before. The Hebrews had nothing but the fuzziest concept of life after death. But ancestor worship did play a role in what they thought might happen. And so in some indefinable way, it was believed that a father's spiritual life lived on through his sons. There was little more fearful then than for any Hebrew man to die with no sons. But for a king especially a Davidic king, it was beyond catastrophic. This would be a good point, I think, now to open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 38, as it adds some nuances to Hezekiah's illness narrative, but it also includes a prayer of thanksgiving after he was healed. And in this prayer, we get a glimpse into Hezekiah's mindset about death and the afterlife. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 493. 493. 
Isaiah chapter 38. Follow along with me. Around this time, Hizkiah became ill to the point of death. And Yeshayahu, the prophet, the son of Amotz, came and said to him, Here's what Adonai says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not live. Isaiah turned his face towards the wall and prayed to Adonai. I plead with you, Adonai. Remember now how I have lived before you truly and wholeheartedly, how I've done what you see is good. And he cried bitter tears. Then the word of Adonai came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah that this is what Adonai, the God of David, your ancestor, says. I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. Therefore, I will add 15 years to your life. Also, I will rescue you and this city from the power of the king of Asher. I'll defend this city. The sign for you from Adonai that Adonai will do what he said is that I will cause the shadow of the sundial which has started going down on the sundial of Achaz to go backward. Ten intervals. So the sun went back ten intervals of the distance it had already gone down. And after Hiskiel, king of Judah had been ill and had recovered he wrote the following. I once said in the prime of life I'm going off to the gates of Sheol. I'm being deprived of living out the full span of my life. I said, I will never again see Yah. Yah in the land of the living. I will look on human beings no more or be with those who live in this world. My home is uprooted and taken away from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off at the loom. Between day and night, you could finish me off. I try to be strong like a lion till morning, but still my illness breaks all my bones. Between day and night, you could finish me off. I make little chattering sounds like a swallow. I moan aloud like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Adonai, I'm overwhelmed. Guarantee my life. What is there that I can say? He has spoken to me and acted. I will go humbly all my years. Remember how bitter I was. Adonai, by these things people live. In all these is the life of my spirit. You're restoring my health and giving me life. Though instead of peace, I feel very better. You desired my life and preserved it from the nothingness pit. For you threw all my sins behind your back. Sheol can't thank you. Death can't praise you. Those living, those descending to the pit can't hope for your truth. The living, the living, they can thank you, as I do today. Fathers will make their children know about your faithfulness. Adonai is ready to save me. Hence, we will make our stringed instruments sound all the days of our life in the house of Adonai. And then Isaiah said, Have them make a fig plaster and apply it to the inflammation, and he will recover. And Hezekiah asked, What sign will there be that I'll be able to go up to the house of Adonai? So, as regards Hezekiah's concept of death and what lies beyond for one of the most righteous kings of Judah that has ever ruled, we observe him to say, that had he died, he would never again seen Yah, seen God. Because God is the God of the land of the living. He would also have never again seen human beings. 
So whatever contact he had with his ancestors after death, they were in some form that didn't mimic a living human. Verse 17 says, The Lord saved him from the nothingness pit. Thus, in some sense, Hezekiah felt that death was the end of life and of the self-consciousness of one's own existence. And at the same time, at least part of the reason for the Lord delivering him was, he had put Hezekiah's sins behind his holy back. Meaning, the Lord put Hezekiah's sins where he couldn't see them. Where he couldn't be offended by them. And by the way, this is not necessarily forgiveness. This is grace. And they are two different things. And by the way, God didn't dispose of Hezekiah's sins. Nor did he somehow cleanse Hezekiah's sins such that they weren't sinful any longer. The sins were just hidden, covered over, so that God didn't have to look upon them. So that God didn't have to act upon them them in just response. Verse 19 explains that only the living can thank the Lord for his goodness and mercies. Thus one can't praise God after death. If there is an afterlife, it's devoid of God, therefore of relationship with God. While this prayer of Hezekiah or rather what this prayer of Hezekiah all adds up to is a brief summation of the current understanding of that time about the nature of life, death, and the afterlife. Basically the thought was that there is no dying and then somehow existing in a spiritual form in God's presence. Rather, after death, there may be some type of shadowy existence, but wherever and whatever it is, it isn't a particularly happy situation, and certainly death is nothing that has any hope in it. There's no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. The best situation for anyone is life, and it's during life, he says, that one has a chance to praise God, experience His grace, and know the joy of living in His ways. Now, I want to stress, this is not the divine description, nor is it the reality of how a worshiper's relationship with God actually works. Nor is it the nature of one's spirit or soul, especially upon death. Rather, this is Hezekiah's. This is the typical Hebrew's flawed human perspective on the matter in the early 7th century BC. They were making their conclusions based on the limited information they had and of course it was greatly influenced by the beliefs of their Gentile neighbors. Continuing to the end of the Old Testament as we have it today The nature of life and death and the afterlife remains generally like this. And when I say, as we have it today, here comes one of those little detours, I'm meaning that the Protestant Bible, 
that most Christians carry around, that you have under your arms, is incomplete. It has a significant hole in it. Because the final books of the Protestant Protestant Bible's Old Testament were removed five centuries ago. Thus, the Protestant Old Testament only takes us up to about 400 years before Christ is born. Then the Bible starts up again with the book of Matthew that, of course, concerns Messiah's birth. Thus, there's this 400-year period of Bible history and the report on the progression of the Hebrew religion that's missing. This situation exists because of Martin Luther who in the early 1500s AD upon his own authority removed the so-called books of the Apocrypha from the Bible that covered that 400 year missing time frame. And this happened when he rebelled against the Roman Catholic Church. These books had been part of the Hebrew Bible that Christ knew. And it continued to be part of the Bible that all Christians knew up until Martin Luther insisted that these books were removed because, according to him, and I quote, they were too Jewish. That's right. Martin Luther was a proud Jew hater. Virulently anti-Semitic. It was this German monk and his Christian doctrines that formed the basis of the new Protestant church and that set Germany itself on the course that culminated in the World War II Holocaust. In some ways, it is several of Martin Luther's misguided doctrines and teachings that the Hebrew Roots movement is attempting to overcome and to bury in Sheol where they belong. It is in the New Testament where we discover the hope of a real, vibrant, in some ways even better, eternal life that awaits after death for the believer. It's in the New Testament where we find out that the Messiah's sacrificial blood is so efficacious that it can atone for us so thoroughly for both our behavioral sins and for our Adam's sin nature that we will actually be able to reside for a time in heaven, in God's presence, in a relationship closer with Him than anything that's possible in this present life. And then later on, with Christ on earth, in the millennial kingdom of God. So now you have a good idea of the many reasons why Hezekiah was so troubled by the thought that he would die at about 38 years old. And then why he was so relieved, so humbled, so grateful to Jehovah for delivering him from this terminal illness. To the ancient Hebrew, and for the most part for the modern Hebrew, the only hope that exists for them is this present carnal life. They believe death is the end. Moving on. 
Let's look again at 2 Kings 20, verse 6. 2 Kings 20, verse 6. God says that A, he's going to immediately rescue Melchizedek, King Hezekiah, from his fatal disease. And B, he's going to rescue Judah from the power of the king of Asher. Now, most Bibles will say that Judah will be rescued from the power of the king of Assyria. I've told you in previous lessons that Asher and Assyria is essentially the same thing. But now I believe you've learned enough that I'm going to explain how technically they're not identical terms. In reality, Asher is the name of the god of Assyria. Yet it was common in those days that a nation would be identified at times by its national name, at other times by its god's name. Thus, often we're going to find in the Bible that Assyria will be called Asher. This was just a common way of speaking in ancient times, especially up in Mesopotamia. And it is an acknowledgement that a god and his territory were organically connected. They couldn't be separated. They are, for all practical purposes, one and the same, and that is how it is viewed by the various Bible characters. So in verse 8, Judah's king asks, What will the sign be that Jehovah will heal him well enough to leave his bed and even be able to go to the temple in a mere three days? The rabbis make the excellent point that the reason for including this piece of information is to draw this sharp contrast between Hezekiah and his father Ahaz. The idea of a sign in the Bible is not as a lack of faith, nor is it what Christians call laying on a fleece. Rather, it is that the person wanting a sign is actually expressing belief. And the sign is only sort of an expected and customary gift of surety from God. So a sign is not an indication of weak faith, and it's also not in any way offensive to the Lord. In Isaiah 7, verses 10, uh, verses 10 and 11, we read this. Isaiah 7, verses 10 and 11. Uh, 10, uh, 10 and 11. Adonai spoke again to Ahaz, and he said, Ask Adonai your God to give you a sign. Ask it anywhere. From the depths of Sheol to the heights above. But then in verse 12, Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, answers, I won't ask. I won't test Adonai. Thus, what we have is that when God through Isaiah told King Ahaz that he was going to deliver Judah from the hand of Israel and their ally Assyria, God told the king that he could come up with his own sign to certify God's promise. Anything Ahaz chose, God would do. But Ahaz wanted no sign from God because he declined to believe God or even to desire Jehovah's deliverance. He preferred to be delivered from Syria, uh, Syria and Israel by the king and the God of Assyria. Now, however, his son Hezekiah 
immediately wants to apprehend God's promise to both deliver him from death and Judah from Assyria, and he's happily ready to accept any sign God chooses to offer. But even then, the Lord offers a choice. He offers a choice of a sign that will satisfy and reassure Hezekiah the most. The sign involves what we call a sundial. But before we get there, let's back up to verse 7 where the Lord tells Hezekiah to apply a cake of figs to some kind of abscess or skin inflammation that was either the source of his illness or perhaps it was the result of his illness. It's not clear. Many Bibles will have a footnote. Your Bible might have a footnote that explains that it was well known that figs had a healing quality. And so it was a standard folk remedy. So for Isaiah to tell Hezekiah to do this would have been easily accepted. That's just bad scholarship. The perpetuation of a myth. And it's reading something backwards into the Bible. In fact, the application of the cake of figs to the affected area was by all that is natural the wrong thing to do. Then as now, it was fully understood that figs are, if anything, a skin irritant. Not something that soothes. And it is one of several fruits that can cause a severe allergic reaction to people. Nobody in their right mind would have put a cake of figs into an open wound in that or any other era unless the goal was maybe torture. (laughs) So what gets missed because of that is that as part of the healing miracle, the Lord used the very thing, figs, that would in nature cause the illness and the pain to become worse. But instead, by His divine power, He used it to heal. And of course, this is considered merit to King Hezekiah because knowing that applying figs to this infected lesion would be awful, he trusts God so much that he allows it. And voila! He's healed. Therefore, we are meant to notice, you see, that it wasn't that the figs contained some magical healing quality. It's that Hezekiah's faith healed him. It was his obedience to God's solution that otherwise seems so counterintuitive to anything human Anything a human would have done or or, or recommended, that's what healed him. Now as for the sundial, Hiskiah's father Ahaz had acquired this sundial from his master, the Assyrians, and he brought it back with him to Judah. Mesopotamians, especially the Chaldeans, were astute astronomers. They had invented many devices for using the heavenly bodies for measuring time and and calculating seasons. Therefore, Isaiah asked Hezekiah if as a sign of God's promise 
he would like the shadow on this sundial to advance 10 intervals, and you see the interval marks on it, or would he like it to go backwards? 10 intervals. Now, since going forward was the natural thing to happen for a sundial, even if it did move faster than normal, Hezekiah asked that it would retreat, because that would have been impossible. And it happened. And we must not compare this with the Joshua incident, in which he asked that the sun stay up in the sky several hours longer, thus to increase the length of the day so he could have his military victory more complete. Rather, this appears to only be a highly localized incident. And somehow, only the shadow on the sundial moved counter to what it should have done. There seems to have been no other effect other than to provide comfort for King Hezekiah. I think we'll end our lesson for today here because we are about to be introduced to the King of Babylon and a very interesting incident that had a long range set of consequences and meaning is about to occur. I prefer we not study that only partially today.